0: Welcome to our sermon for March 14th, The Companionship of Jesus for Us Outcasts and Sinners. First section, Jumping to Judgment. Our key idea today is that Jesus surprised others by his choice of who he hung around with. He didn't share common prejudices. He calls his followers to love our neighbor, to treat them as we would like to be treated ourselves, instead of looking down our nose at them because of their past or their current condition. Or even to count others better than ourselves, to outdo one another in honoring others. Instead, it's easy to jump to conclusions about people, to judge a book by its cover, to form prejudices based on very limited evidence. Don't mistake this. Uh, don't make the same mistake this lady did, who thought she was too good for her room. A lady visiting New York for the first time was being led to her tel- hotel by the bellboy. As she walked through the door, she became indignant and snapped at the man i tell you that I won't have this room. I'm not paying my good money for this cramped cubby hole with a tiny folding bed not fit to sleep on. and There's no TV, no phone, and I suppose you expect me to walk down the hall to use the, the bellboy cutter short. Ma'am, this isn't your room. This is the elevator. It's all too easy to jump to conclusions in forming our judgments. Next section. What's Jesus doing with those people? As we continue on in Mark 2, Jesus' ministry is picking up speed. His miracles are earning quite a name for him. He's starting to attract a large following. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. A large crowd. All sorts of folks from all across society. Some would become disciples that followed him all the way throughout his ministry. Others would remain at a distance. Jesus' critics watched intently. Who would this upstart rabbi choose to spend his time with? If he was smart and knew what was good for him, it would be them. They would never have dreamed Jesus would pick a tax collector to be one of his closest followers. Verse 14 says, As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, there's a little bit about the tax collection system in Palestine at that time, you should know. Under Roman occupation, it had become kind of a mashup between civic duty and organized crime. John MacArthur describes the system this way. He says, There were two categories of tax collectors. One, Gabai, who collected general taxes on land and property and on income, referred to as poll or registration taxes. And two, mokas." A who collected a wide variety of use taxes, similar to our import duties, business license fees and toll fees. There were two categories of mokas. Great mokas hired others to collect taxes for them, while small mokas did their own assessing and collecting. Matthew was a small mocha. He goes on to say, Matthew was a publican, a tax collector, a despised profession in Palestine because such men were viewed as traitors. Publicans were Jews who had bought tax franchises from the Roman government. Any amount collected over what Rome required, they were allowed to keep. Thus, many publicans became wealthy at the expense of their own people. Jesus would likely have found Levi, or Matthew as he is also called, sitting at the toll gate on the Great West Road from Damascus to the Mediterranean. So here he is at a prime location with the right to collect from every trader that happens to come down the turnpike. Maybe he paid handsomely for this plum spot, but now he's set for life. Simply rake it in from his countrymen as they pass by, all with the state's blessing. We find out from the context he probably has a fine house of good size that could host a banquet with numerous guests. Christ just says two words, follow me, and it's enough. Levi gets up and follows him. Had his conscience been bothering him, collecting over and above what was really due? Had the sneers and abuse from Levi's fellow Jews been eating away at the satisfaction of putting food on the table? For whatever reason, something deep inside Levi prompts him to respond, to get up and get moving with Jesus. As a result, we have the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew, with its careful tie-ins with the Jewish Old Testament, the fulfillment of prophecies, beautiful arrangement of Jesus' teaching into five sub-books. Matthew, or Levi, was obviously a careful record-keeper, good at his job. But he chose to give away all that to follow this mysterious Messiah. We have Jesus saying, number one, I have begun to follow Jesus and am depending upon the spirit of Jesus in my journey. Not depending on money or income or the power of the government to back my fleecing of my fellow Judeans. Levi turned his back on all that and committed his future into Jesus' hands. He felt so good about this decision, he decided to throw a banquet and celebrate. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. New Living Translation says, Many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers many people of this kind are we talking about those people i'm not just talking about people here i'm talking about turn up your nose those people did your parents fill you in on those people while you were growing up i used to think my parents were pretty unprejudiced but we did pick up also by osmosis some of their attitudes toward people they didn't really have a very good opinion about There were our next-door neighbors who had more kids and seemed to keep on having more kids, who didn't really seem to have a regular job, dressed not as nice as we did. The kids who sometimes seemed to steal from us when items went missing. I'm guessing they drank some and we didn't. Those people. There were the indigenous people we never met, but Dad had stories about. A man who, when he was growing up, had walked right into their home as if he owned the place, took what he wanted to eat, and left again. That sort of story prompts you to form an opinion about a whole group of people. Those people. There were the Catholics who inhabited the north half of the township and attended the big imposing Catholic church in Dublin. Protestants in the south half preferred not to have much to do with the north half, almost as if there was an invisible dividing line halfway across the township and the two groups just avoided each other. Those people. Little did I realize I would be in close partnership years later with Frère Armand, a Catholic lay brother who would be teaching braille and other schooling at the newly formed National Institute for the Blind in Congo. I actually got to know him and appreciate him, one time going for a meal with his other lay brothers in their little community. Do you have any of those people in your acquaintance? What measures did your parents use to induce you to put up invisible barriers that would seal you off safe from those people who might influence you, that you are better off not having too much to do with? Who for you are those people that you'd rather not meet coming down the street? As for Jesus, he seems to have been surprisingly at home with those people. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? New Living Translation more bluntly puts it, Why does he eat with such scum? You can almost hear the sneer in their voice. Old patterns are hard to break. Robertson's Word Pictures notes, It was an offense for a Jew to eat with Gentiles and publicans and sinners were regarded like Gentiles. See Acts 11.2, even in the early church, it says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. You associated with those people. For to eat with someone in the Middle East implies acceptance, even approval, if you break bread together. Jesus is not pressured or manipulated into leaving the feast of the quote-unquote sinners. He uses a medical analogy. If they're going to think they're better than others, so be it. We'll let them be called the righteous, if they think they're such hot stuff. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Luke's account of this story, Jesus' complete response ends, Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, you who presume to be morally healthy, I didn't come to call you. I came to call sinners, those who know they've fallen short, those who realize they're not able to stand on their own feet before a holy God, those who are ready to submit their attitudes. And priorities and mindset because they're just not working to give the meaning and relationships life ought to have I've come to treat the sick to inoculate them with this vaccine called the kingdom of God to help them rethink their whole approach to life oriented around what God most wants you've got to be ready to have your worldview turned upside down to discover how God really looks at things you don't need a do-over on the surface you need a heart transplant Only those who recognize they are spiritually sick, that they are not healthy, are the ones Dr. Jesus can help. They are the ones he came to save, not the righteous, but sinners. Those who have reached the end of the rope and realize there is no way they are ever going to impress God. G. Campbell Morgan was one of 150 young men who sought entrance into the Wesleyan ministry in 1888. He had passed his written exam but faced the test of giving a trial sermon in front of a panel. When the results were released, Morgan's name was among the 105 who were rejected. He wired his father with one word, rejected. And he sat down and wrote in his diary, Very dark. Everything seems still. He knoweth best. The reply to his telegram was quick to arrive. It read, Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven dad. As G. Campbell Morgan went on to prove, rejection on earth is often of little consequence. Jesus was in fact hanging out in Levi's house with rejects, outcasts, those officially cut off from the synagogue, labeled sinners. As Morgan's father wisely recognized, rejection on earth is of no consequence in heaven. Next section, religion or relating Discriminatory practices extend to religious practices. I've already mentioned the Catholic-Protestant divide in my township. growing up. As we gain some mastery over sins of various kinds, if we're not careful, it can become a yardstick by which we judge others, patting ourselves on the back if we think we're further ahead than them in moral disciplines. So we conquer the more elementary or baser sins, only to be caught in the devil's trap, pride. In our next part of today's reading, Jesus comes under scrutiny not just by the Pharisees, but by the followers of John the Baptist, who had initially hailed Jesus' coming. But with John in prison, it seems some of his followers had gravitated back toward more established forms of the Jewish faith, including the traditional fasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays each week, even though the Law of Moses only required it once a year on the Day of Atonement. Mark 2.18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? There is nothing wrong with them fasting, but it was an error to project that onto others as a have-to or a shortfall when it was simply part of tradition. With the many forms of Christianity today, there could be any number of measuring sticks used to criticize those of other churches, other denominations. How come you don't stand when the gospel is being read, or when the prayer is being said, local tradition here? How come you drive cars instead of horse and buggy? How come you drive colored cars instead of all black cars? How come you don't use an organ? How come you use instruments at all instead of just singing a cappella? How come you don't have an evening Sunday service? How come you don't allow female elders? How come you allow or don't allow children to take communion? how come you don't baptize babies, and on and on. Oh, we would say some of these practices conform more or less closely to the biblical pattern. None of them really address the core matter, which is a person's relationship with Christ, their depth of commitment, their faith, expressing itself through love. Do you want an external works-based religion, where we're always sizing each other up according to where we rank on the stairs of righteousness? That's static and stale and focused on picky details that aren't central to what Jesus' kingdom is really about. Or do you want a living, breathing, dynamic relationship? An adventure that's responding daily to the leading of our Lord Jesus for each one. To this prideful approach, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus responds with three images that help us imagine or picture or visualize what's most important differently. Party, patch, and popping. Party. As the Christian band Tim and the Glory Boys are wont to say, the kingdom of God is a party. Mark two nineteen. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus' choice of illustration is very wise. John's disciples might have remembered how the Baptist spoke about Jesus back in John 3.29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends to the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus as the bridegroom. John was the bridegroom's friend, so perhaps Jesus is appealing directly to John's disciples who are laying this criticism. Remember how your teacher rejoiced to see my coming? Life is about relationship. Rules can be set aside when special occasions come, when the Messiah's arrival calls for celebration. All too soon, Jesus would be crucified, and at that time, his followers would mourn and fast. From one dynamic image, party to another, patch. Listen for the action, the movement going on in this next illustration. Mark 2.21, Jesus said, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. One might ask, Is there give in your relationship with God and others? Does it breathe or is it just rote routine? Are you growing or stuck and not learning anything new? Have you been putting into practice what you've already learned? John's disciples and the scribes of the Pharisees were stuck in their religious routines. It gave structure and order to their lives, probably, but prevented them from seeing the new thing God was doing in Jesus' ministry, bringing to himself tax collectors and sinners to whom fasting was probably a foreign concept. See the focus on context here. In party, there's awareness of who the other one is that's present, the bridegroom. In patch, there's awareness of the condition of the other one. Unshrunk cloth is different than older material that's already done its shrinking. So don't try to force old established patterns on a new movement that's drawing in folks the old community excluded party, patch, and popping. Mark 2.22. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, Jesus says. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. There's risk of bursting, of popping, because the new wine has to ferment and age and convert fruit sugars into alcohol that will help preserve it from going bad. Old wineskins have done their stretching already to the limit, there's no give left. New wineskins still have their stretchiness and can accommodate the pressure as the juice turns to wine. All these examples point to context, to relationship, to adaptability, to accommodating what's new and changing on an individual level, is our faith alive, listening to the new directions God would take us in, watching for his next lessons? Are we loving him and loving our neighbor? Are there people he has brought us into connection with that we need to heed, to pay attention to, to come alongside and mentor or witness to? Or are we content to just hang around the same old bunch with whom we feel comfortable and who reinforce our notions and prejudices? On a corporate level, is our church responding to the needs of the community around us? Are we really taking the hurts of our neighbors seriously, dreaming of ways to help them, or just perpetuating the same old programs we've done for decades? Some of the visioning exercise from Carrie Newhoff the elders looked at this past week said, clarify what is mission and what is method. The mission is sacred, the methods are temporary. And... Connect the cultural dots. Look for cultural patterns that provide clues. When church leaders lost access to our building, we behaved as though we lost access to ministry. End quote. Culture has changed since 2002-2003 when the Huron Chapel facility was built. The iPhone wasn't introduced until 2007. Now everyone practically is online. How do we more effectively engage a digital culture? Church-going patterns have changed just in the past years since the start of the pandemic. Will we adjust accordingly or plod blindly on as if nothing has changed? The elders approved a major upgrade to our audio-video system, along with sound booth reconstruction, because they sense online church is going to be much more important for our church's reach than it was before. So as culture shifts, we adjust our method, but maintain the same mission. Last section, count others better. In closing, we saw onlookers were scandalized by Jesus hanging out with tax collectors like Levi and sinners, those who the synagogue had officially excommunicated. He responded by saying he came to heal the sick, to be a doctor, calling not the righteous but sinners to repentance. In what ways do we need to repent, rethink, jettison old prejudices, quit looking down our noses at those people? Like those who took pride in their fasting twice a week, do our religious customs get in the way of us perceiving the fresh thing the Lord is trying to do in our lives, in our church? Does our faith relationship have give and stretch, or is it locked in an unchangeable rut? The Israelites in the desert ran into big trouble when they rebelled and treated God with contempt, despising Him. We get into trouble when we treat with contempt our neighbor, the ones our Lord commanded us to love. Who do we need to treat better than we have been? Who have we been shunning like a tax collector, avoiding as if they were a person of disrepute? That's not what the New Testament teaches. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Mark 12, 31, Jesus said, Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Paul, Galatians 5, 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Beware conceit, arrogance, and pride. It's the thing that if we master every other area of sin, the devil can still catch us on. The Holy Spirit will help us instead see ways to build others up, count them better than ourselves. Can we be self-effacing like this example? When Charles W. Eliot, famous president of Harvard University, was being honored one evening at a banquet, a colleague said, Permit me to congratulate you on the miracle you have performed at the university. Since you became president, Harvard has become a storehouse of knowledge. That is true, laughed Elliot, but I scarcely deserve the credit for that. It is simply that the freshmen bring in so much, and the seniors take away so little. More seriously, take the example of Sister Anne Rose Tong, a nun in Myanmar, who knelt just this past week in front of police that had been shooting student protesters. The students ran for safety to a clinic where she was working. She knelt pleading for the police to stop the killing and even to take her life instead of the students. I'm glad to see, say it worked, the police did leave. That's counting others better than yourself. That is like Jesus coming to give his own life in the stead of sinners, to be a doctor healing those who are spiritually sick and calling out for help. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your kingdom is a party. Thank you for inviting us to the feast, along with Levi and other tax collectors and sinners. You know how much we need your healing, Lord Jesus. We need your stretching, the pouring of your Holy Spirit. We need your help to move beyond stale patterns of religion in order to bring relationship to our hurting neighbors and world. Like Levi, help us to leave all behind that would distract us and follow